Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Mark chapters 15 and 16 take us to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. In these chapters, Jesus has a trial before Pilate. Uh, he's then crucified, buried, and rises again. Mark 15 begins with an early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council merely held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. I mentioned last time that uh, any Jewish trials that happened during the night would have been illegal. And so they have to meet in the morning to have it be an official and a formal trial. Nonetheless, they hired him away to Pilate. Verse 2, Pilate questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And answering him, he said, It is as you say. Pilate's question seems awkward. It, it seems to imply that Pilate has already been confronted by, with the question of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, if Jesus hasn't said anything at all, we don't suspect that he did, then why are you accusing him to be the king of the Jews? It likely is the case that Pilate has been consulted by the Jewish authorities, uh, probably even the night before. Uh, if John's gospel is correct and that there were Roman soldiers who were present at the, trial of at the arrest of Jesus, then it seems indeed that they have gone to Pilate, perhaps even the night before, said, look, we're ready to have this man arrested. Here's the situation. And they bring Jesus out in the next morning. And so Pilate questions him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 3, the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Pilate was questioning him again, saying, do you make no answer? Uh, see how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Uh, again, Jesus is silent before, her, uh, before uh, his accusers. He acknowledges, well, yeah, sure, I'm the king of the Jews, but uh, we see in the Gospel of John more details upon this, and we realize that Pilate didn't feel any threat by Jesus' accusation of being a kingdom. According to John chapter 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not even of this world. Uh, Pilate's not threatened by Jesus. According to Mark's Gospel, uh, Pilate now appears to try to be releasing Jesus. Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife had had a dream about Jesus, and she warned Pilate not to have anything to do with him, and maybe that had instilled some, some form of fear for Pilate. So verse 6 tells us that at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man uh, named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. So Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stood up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. After having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Uh, the story sounds a little bit or seems a little bit interesting, but when we find a little bit more of the background about what's going on, uh, it begins to make a little bit of sense. Pilate was notorious of being a poor ruler, uh, he had ruled over Jerusalem for a number and Judea for a number of years, uh, and he had committed a lot of gaffes. Uh, Pilate had actually been turned in to the, by the Jewish authorities to Rome on a couple of occasions, and Pilate knew that he was going to be in trouble if the Jewish authorities went to Rome and complained about him uh, uh, as a ruler, as a uh, procurator. He was going to be in a lot of trouble. 
Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews. If Pilate doesn't have Jesus crucified, and the Jews go to Rome and, go to Rome and indicate, look, this man claimed to be the king, and Pilate wouldn't do anything about him, and we want something done about it, Pilate probably would have been in a lot of trouble. So Pilate kind of had his hands tied. His poor leadership and his poor uh, uh, rulership over uh, Jerusalem and Judea and the Jewish people in, in general had got him in, into a bind. So, but he doesn't want to have Jesus crucified. He, he, he seems Jesus is innocent, and maybe because of his wife's dream, he's fearing Jesus to some extent. So he decides, well, I know what I'll do. I'll give him an opportunity. I'll, I'll, I'll give him two people to choose from, one, one whom they can release. First off, a man named Barabbas. Now, we must realize Barabbas is not a man's name. Bar is the Aramaic prefix that means son of, and Abba is the Aramaic word for father. Barabbas' name literally translates as a son of a father. In addition, this man Barabbas, whatever his name may have been, was an insurrectionist. What that means is that he, he had been convicted of murder. Uh, he had been a, perhaps even a zealot, one of the, the Jews who tried to oppose Roman rule to the point of actually committing murder against the Roman authority. So for Pilate to even offer this man would have been incredible to begin with. Pilate does not want a zealot going free. But at the same time, he figures, well, surely they're going to choose uh, Jesus over Barabbas. Nobody likes the, the zealots. The zealots, um, because of their um, desire to oppose Roman occupation and Roman uh, governments uh, so, so zealously, they would commonly commit murder and other crimes. And the result of that would be that the the Romans would clamp down on all the Jews. They would, they would punish all the Jewish people. So the Jews didn't like the zealots any more than the Romans did. Surely this man, Barabbas, would be released and not Jesus. Now, perhaps there's a contrast between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas, again, his name means a son of, the fa of a father. And Jesus would probably be Bar Abba, the son of the father. The irony, of course, is that a convicted, convicted murderer is going to be set free while an innocent man is going to be killed. Pilate thought he could get out of this ordeal, but instead the crowd shout, crucify, crucify. Wanting to satisfy the crowds, Pilate re releases Barabbas and orders Jesus to be flogged and handed over to be crucified. Verse 16 says, The soldiers, soldiers took him away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing down and bowing before him and after they had mocked him they took the purple off him and put his garments on them and they led him out to crucify him the roman soldiers are mocking jesus as this with purple and a crown of thorns of course mocking his claim to being deity or more specifically his claim to being the king hail king of the jews the irony of course is that jesus is the king of the jews verse 21 says they pressed into service a passerby coming from a country named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, uh, Mark notes in parentheses, to bear his cross. Obviously, Alexander and Rufus were probably known by the readers of the Gospel of Mark uh, as Simon's children. Now, if Simon is not a Roman citizen or, or a non-citizen at all, he, must be, he can be forced to, to do such activities by the Roman authorities. Remember Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, if anyone asks you to go one mile, go with him two. The Romans actually had the, this law of conscription, that says that if a Roman soldier asks you to carry something, you must, by law, carry it for one mile. Jesus says, if a Roman asks you to do that, just go two miles. So here's this man, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is from North Africa. Uh, Christianity flourished in North Africa for generations and generations, even up to the present day. Simon's forced to carry the crossbar. Remember, Jesus had said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, may he take up his cross and follow me. 
Simon is doing this perfectly. Verse 22 says, They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated as the place of the skull. In Latin, Golgotha means Calvary. Now, we don't know why it's called Golgotha, but most likely it's a reference to the fact that this is where Rome crucified lots of victims. Rome would always crucify victims in a major city right outside the city gates on a main thoroughfare. So people coming in and going out of the city would see these victims and realize that they've done something against Rome that I'm going to make sure I don't do against Rome. So, but Rome rarely buried their victims. They would often throw them into a mass grave, into a mass pit. Um, and so perhaps the place of the skull is a reference to where all the bones were. Uh, if you've been to Israel today or to the Holy Land today, you might go to a place called the uh, uh, Golgotha, and it's a, the garden tomb. I personally don't believe it's actually the place of Jesus' crucifixion and, and, uh, uh, and, and his burial. It's outside the city gates uh, that were there around the year 100, not the city gates around the year 30. Nonetheless, verse 23 says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Uh, there's an old tradition that says that respected women in Jerusalem provided a, a narcotic, uh, some kind of sedative for those who were condemned. They had such pity and compassion on those who were uh, being crucified that the Romans allowed these women uh, to come up and give uh, a, basically a drug to kind of ease their pain. But Jesus refuses the drug. Verse 24 says they crucified him and divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each one should take. Now, uh, there were four soldiers likely on duty for uh, any time an execution like this would take place. And it appears that Jesus must have had five garments, an undergarment, an outer garment, sandals, a belt, and a head covering. Thus, what they decided to do with the fifth garment was to cast lots for it. Jesus had a seamless garment on. A seamless garment was more valuable, especially if it was not ripped. So they take those garments and they cast lots for them. Now, the question is, was Jesus crucified naked? It was the Roman policy, actually, to crucify victims naked, but the Jewish sensitivities required that victims uh, be given a loincloth. The Jews did not uh, uh, agree with or believe in this idea of nudity. We're not sure if the Romans respected it. I personally think that the Romans did respect the Jewish scruple here, and the Jews had at least a loincloth on. Nonetheless, it was the third hour, we're told in verse 25, when they crucified him. Romans and the Jews at this time counted time from 6 o'clock in the morning. So if it was around the third hour, it's sometime around 9 o'clock. But Mark probably means it's the, the, this period of time between 9 and noon. Uh, so somewhere between 9 and noon, they didn't really care for preciseness, preciseness of time as, as we do. Verse 26 tells us, And the inscription uh, uh, of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. There it is, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. There's no question at all that the gospel writers want us to understand that Jesus was crowned king on the cross. Oftentimes, in a lot of popular Christianity, we hear this notion that Jesus came the first time to be the suffering servant. He's, he's going to come the second time to be the triumphant king. After all, the book of Revelation says he comes back on a white horse, and that's the triumphant king. So the problem with that is, is that the gospel stories are emphatic. First off, the kingdom of God has begun in Jesus and that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. He's called the king of kings and the Lord of lords uh, in scripture. Furthermore, the description in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus' crucifixion clearly indicates that Jesus was crowned king. The gospel writers are not, uh, are not passing by the idea that they mocked, dressed him in purple and wove a crown of thorns for, for no reason at all. They're mocking him as the king of the Jews, because he really, but he really is the king of the Jews. That's the irony of the gospel stories. 
The significance, however, is that Jesus was crowned King of the Jews on the cross. So when the Bible tells us that we also are kings and queens, then the significance becomes that we also obtain our kingship and our queenship by carrying our crosses and following Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. The Gentiles, they lorded over those in authorities, but not so with you. Jesus in the Gospel of John comes washing his disciples' feet, and he tells his disciples, look, I'm your Lord and I'm your master, yet I came as a servant. So also then we realize that we too, even though we are kings, are called to be servants. Now, the crucifying of one on his left and one of his right reminds us in chapter 10 when James and John request to be seated on Jesus' right and on his left when, he's, when he enters into his glory. Verse 29 continues, Those who are passing by hurled insults at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, ah, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, so save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him, saying, he saved others and he cannot save himself. Uh, I think this is one of the most interesting statements in Scripture. Jesus actually has the ability to get off the cross and to save himself. Jesus actually could do so. Uh, if you can only understand the, uh, the, the desire to, to save your own honor that, that's, being, that, that's overwhelming Jesus at this moment, you know, they're mocking him. And the one thing any man wants to do, of course, is to defend himself at all costs. And he really could get off the cross and he really could save himself. But the reality is if Jesus gets off the cross and saves himself, he condemns them all. Verse uh, 32, let this Christ then, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. When the sixth hour had come, which would be noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock. At the ninth hour, Jews cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began uh, saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine they put on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Darkness, of course, is a symbol of judgment. The symbol uh, reminds us of the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Jesus Quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, all Jews were taught to quote scripture in times of distress. Perhaps it's true that God has truly forsaken Jesus as he's bearing the sins of the world. But as Jesus quotes this, uh, quotes, My God, my God, some have mistaken the, the statement Eloi for the statement Eli. And they conclude that maybe he's calling for Elijah. Uh, now, the mistake could have been accentuated by Jesus' great fatigue. And uh, when a person dies by crucifixion, they've suffered an intense amount of blood loss. Uh, the beatings that take place prior to a person going onto the cross uh, were actually designed to, 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 to hasten the death. Uh, let, let's beat him so bad that he dies, he dies more quickly. Uh, Jesus has been beaten and bloodied, and uh, as a result, all your bodily fluids and bodily systems go to, the, to, to replicating or, or producing of blood. And so as a result, he's going to be intensely thirsty. So they offer him some wine vinegar, and this time, unlike the sedative earlier he was offered, he takes it. Verse 37 then indicates he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. A loud cry is something uh, very impressive for a victim of crucifixion. 
who commonly die from suffocation due to exhaustion. Verse 39 now. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. We open our study of the Gospel of Mark with verse 1 in chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now here is the climax of the Gospel, Mark 15, verse 39. Truly or surely this man was the Son of God. Mark begins and he ends his Gospel with this recognition that Jesus is the Son of, the Son of God. Verse 40 says that there were some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less than Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, verse 42 says, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up, a, up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was wondering if he was dead by this time. Summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether or not he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph brought in a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had already been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. The burial of Jesus takes place in haste. Uh, according, to the, uh, according to the biblical text, Jesus was crucified on a Friday night. Uh, on a Friday. By 6 p.m. Uh, Friday night, it becomes Saturday, which is the Sabbath day for the Jewish people. Now, the Jews had no problem burying a person on the Sabbath day because the Jewish law prescribes that a person is to be buried the, the day they died. But Jesus didn't die on the Sabbath. So, first off, the goal always was to bury a person the, the day they died. But since the next day was the Sabbath, it was even more imp important to have Jesus buried before sundown. So the burial takes place quickly. The women were watching. They had an idea where he was buried, but most likely they didn't realize that Joseph of Arimathea, and according to the Gospel of John, Nicodemus as well, had actually prepared Jesus' body for burial with cloth and spices and all, and all the like. That's why the women come back on Sunday morning after the Sabbath to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Uh, chapter 16 says that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought spices that they might come and anoint him. They had probably seen Jesus' burial, but they didn't realize that he was actually prepared properly. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, and he requests Jesus' body. Interestingly, it says, when he had enough courage, he went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It was not unheard of in the Roman world for uh, people who died from crucifixion to be buried in private tombs. In fact, they have a discovery archaeologically of a man uh, who apparently was named Yohanan, who died by crucifixion. His bones were discovered in an ossuary, which is a, a burial box, uh, and it had an ankle bone with a nail still in it. It appears that the nail, when he was died by crucifixion, when they went to nail him to the cross, that the nail actually hit a knot in the wood, and the end of the tip of the nail curved in. So when they went to take him down from the cross, they couldn't get the nail out. So this man clearly died by, by crucifixion, was buried in a private tomb. So the idea of Jews being buried in a private tomb is not unheard of. Joseph of Arimathea, interestingly, is a sympathizer, a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Jewish council, who, according to the Gospel of John, along with Nicodemus, took Jesus down and had him buried. Chapter 16 then begins, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday morning, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll, roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? 
And they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they have laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Interestingly, the resurrection accounts in all four Gospels always include women as the first ones at the tomb. Even more surprising is the fact that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four Gospels. Mary Magdalene, according to the Gospel of Luke, is one who had seven demons cast out of her. Yet she is heralded as the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is surprising because in the ancient world, a woman's testimony was not respected or regarded as valid in the court of law. If the disciples and early Christians are making up the whole notion of Jesus' death and resurrection, they certainly would never have made up the story with women being the first eyewitnesses to the tomb. The women are told that, uh, that to, to go tell Peter and the disciples that Jesus is going to go ahead of them into Galilee, fulfilling the promise of chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus told the disciples that I'll go before you into Galilee. The women don't obey the command, apparently, because they were afraid. It says, they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, the Gospel of Mark, as we know it, ends at this point, chapter 16, verse 8. There are actually four different endings that are postulated in the various manuscripts. But it's almost certain that verses 9, 9 through 20 in our version of the Gospel of Mark are not actually legitimate uh, uh, part of the originals. Uh, we don't know what the original ending was. We're certain that the original ending is missing, that the Gospel of Mark probably does not end with verse 8. Certainly there appears uh, the, the likelihood that, that there's a resurrection account uh, that belongs in the Gospel of Mark. The idea of the Gospel of Mark ending with no resurrection account doesn't really seem to make sense. Uh, uh, Jesus has been predicting all along that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to suffer, and he's going to rise again on the third day. Uh, that, that the story ends with an empty tomb but not with the resurrection itself, with the resurrection appearance of Jesus, doesn't seem to make sense uh, uh, overall. Furthermore, the promise to his disciples that he's going to appear to them in Galilee, which he had told the women, go let the disciples know that I'm going to appear to them in Galilee, really kind of presupposes that the story is going to end at least with Jesus going into Galilee and meeting up with the disciples. In addition, when we look at the Greek text of the Gospel of Mark, the very last word of the Greek text is this word uh, that's translated as for, uh, and the word for is never the last word in a sentence. So we can tell even just by looking at the manuscript itself that, the, that something is missing, that this is not the end of the story. We've reached the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, it's been rich and rewarding. I hope it's been beneficial to you as well. Uh, the Gospel of Mark relays for us first and foremost uh, who Jesus Christ is. Mark has told us from the beginning of his Gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, and now we've seen this Roman centurion confess Truly, this man was the Son of God. The disciples have been grappling all along with who Jesus is, trying to figure out who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him. Peter confesses, you're the Christ, but he doesn't fully understand what that means because he begins to rebuke Jesus when he says he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. Now, James and John want to appear on his right and on his left, but they don't understand that they're actually asking for places on the cross next to him. And The disciples are continuing to grasp with who this is. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, we begin to see that uh, according to the other Gospels and the book of Acts, they're still not fully understanding, you know, Lord, are you going to establish your kingdom at this time? Not fully understanding that, yeah, I've already done that, and when the Spirit comes, it'll happen more. 
Um, so it's not until the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts, chapter 2, that the disciples begin to really fully grasp what's going on uh, with Jesus. Moreover, the Gospel of Mark has been telling us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be with him, to follow Jesus. Come, follow me, he tells the disciples out of the, to come out of the boat, and Matthew to leave his tax collector booth. Uh, and we see women following Jesus. We see others uh, who have demons cast out of him following Jesus and to be with Jesus. And furthermore, to be a disciple of Jesus means that we take up our crosses and we follow him. Following him to the way of the cross, the nature of Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of love, a kingdom predicated on service and submission, not as the Gentiles rule over, over do we rule, but we rule as Jesus rules by laying down our lives for the sake of the nations. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.